following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Reading Ephesians 6. Yay, we made it. (laughs) Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life on earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, and whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given to me, that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. Tychicus, the dear brother of and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything, so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how you, we are, and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus with an undying love. May the Lord bless the reading of the scriptures. Thank you, Lauren. Um, one of the lines that we sang, or some of the words that we sang tonight, um, were the word trust in Jesus' name because he's Lord of all. Um, and really, if you look at the, a lot of the undertones and the things that, not just undertones, but things that Paul said very directly in this letter, a lot of it really does have to base itself upon how firmly we don't just sing that, but how much we really believe it. Because if Jesus is that cornerstone, if Jesus is our focus, if Jesus is the one that we think really is our hope, it will help us. Well, number one, it changes everything. It changes your whole perspective. Um, There actually could be things that are making us anxious today that that anxiety might go away if we knew that Jesus was Lord of all. Right. And so um, I almost feel like that we just need to go back and have a lesson on the songs we sang. Um, but much like Olivia said last night in our teaching, we actually talked about the fact in the midst of a very strong teaching on ways that we practice out our faith, which is Ephesians five in the middle of it is him reminding them that it's very important that they sing. Um, and we talked about the fact that that's a way that we can be reminded of truth. We can be reminded to stand firm. We can fight temptation. So songs are very important. All right. There are a few of you that um, might be uh, first times tonight. I don't know if you've been listening online. So let me catch you up in 60 seconds. Acts 19, Paul planted a church in Ephesus. He planted it with 12 Jewish men that he found in a synagogue that were interested in him. Other Jewish people weren't interested, so he rented a room. He didn't fight with the antagonists. He went straight to the ones that were willing to listen. They were baptized. They received the Holy Spirit. They began to do all these amazing things. And before long, the entire region 
Within three years, the entire region, everybody had heard about the Jesus that Paul was preaching about. A riot breaks out, and the riot broke out because everybody was changing their behavior. Like, Ephesus was a city of cultural power, religious temples, all this kind of stuff. But literally within three years, they were losing money at their sinful practices because nobody was participating in them or people weren't participating in the quantity that they once were. So a riot broke out. They were accusing Paul and his people. The city mayor stood up and said, listen, we got to quiet this down. And by the way, you can't really accuse them because they haven't really done anything wrong. They haven't stolen from us. You can't hold any accusation against them. You know, might be able to take them to civil court for something about the financial part. But these people aren't, you know, doing anything wrong. Their character has been great. And so we find that the planting of this church in Ephesus was very fast. It was rapid. It wasn't like Paul moved in. It's like, wow, I just hope I can plant a church here in 30 years. He actually literally began to get a message out and churches were, the church was growing and becoming alive and changing the cultural powers of the day. So then now 30, about 30 some years later, around 30 years later, we're now in Acts chapter 28. He's chained up to a guard and the church in Ephesus is now maturing. There's more, there's actually probably more churches in the region. And so he's now in prison and he's writing them a letter because once churches get older and mature, they get in, they get set in their ways. They actually can get set in bad ways. They can get set in good ways. There's conflict that starts to rise when you start mixing people of different ages, different faith. I mean, imagine being one discipled by Paul, walking into the church meeting, and then a new young Christian walks in. Paul knew that they were going to have tension. I mean, fortunately in our church, the majority of our people are in a relatively same age bracket. But still, even with that, except, sorry, Bob, uh, Bob tips the scale. Um, um, we would be in our 20s at an average age or it wasn't for Bob. Um, but uh, when. Uh, but what we find here in the city of Ephesus is that with rapid with with intense discipleship and a in solid theology and solid practice, things rapidly changed. And so we're finding in this letter that Paul wants them to have right theology. That's the first three chapters. So if this is your first time with us tonight, chapter six isn't going to mean as much because I'm going to have to reference things in chapters one, two and three. But we don't have time to revisit them all. But the foundational belief behind everything that we're talking about in chapter six has everything to do with whether or not we're fully embracing the first three chapters. Because the first three chapters talks about the fact that it's God's grace. I mean, we are given grace, which is undeserved favor, which we do not deserve to be saved. We don't deserve to be joint heirs to the kingdom of God. But what we've talked about is that a lot of people in church don't think that they really cost Jesus too much. Like on a scale of one to ten, we might think, ah, I maybe only own God a dollar. So Jesus had to die for my dollar because I'm really a good person. So Jesus actually died to make a good person better. That, that's really the, 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 a, 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 an attack of the enemy, which will fit really good into this, this Ephesians 6. Because if we are thinking wrongly about who we are, it impacts what we think about God, what we think about each other, what we think about the church, what we think about our city. And if we're not careful, so so much of Paul's writings in chapters two and three was about the battle of the mind. And then he spent so much time talking about the fact that there needs to be no division amongst us. And that, that includes ethnicities, economics. It doesn't it doesn't matter where you're from, what's going on in your in, in your life or where you're what, what, what you've been taught, because we're now all in Christ. And so now we're a part of a new body and Christ is the head of that body and the head is perfect. Now the body has to mature into the head. And that's where we are um, when we begin here in Ephesians chapter six. Um, let me start because this first section of Ephesians six is about different types of relationships. It's child, parents, slaves and masters. So I'm going to start um, with the slavery side and then I'm going to work my way back into the child parenting and all that other kind of stuff. But I want to start with this because I think we need to ease our way into the thinking of all of this, because I think uh, we all come with different perceptions of what first century would have been like. 
I don't know if you've ever worked at a place, but I actually worked at a Staples office supply store for a little while when I was in college. And I had other red-shirted employees that would go hide back in the back warehouse or in the back aisles and literally were doing nothing until they heard the door swing and they knew the manager was coming through and then they would act really busy. Um, Any of you guys ever worked with anybody like that? Um, They wait until they know the manager's coming. Um, but otherwise they're working slow, but when the manager coming, they're stocking shelves, they're, you know, they're sorting things and they're doing everything that they're supposed to. But when the manager's not watching, they're cheating the time, right? They're not being uh, forthright. And I really believe that, um, whatever dishonest practices you see in your work environment about people not putting in the effort, not doing the work that they're supposed to be doing. I think that is at the, at part of the, the warning that Paul has for the slaves in this chapter when he talks about the fact what the manager sees. Because I think Paul is alluding to the fact that you could be a lazy slave in a particular house. And he's like, no, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. You need to be doing it because of Christ. He said to the slaves um, whose only pay usually was food and lodging. In the first century, it wasn't like they got a paycheck. They had a house. They got food. They got lodging. They had some effects to the family. But it wasn't necessarily that they were bringing home a paycheck because in that particular day and time, as long as they had food and shelter and clothes to wear and they had things to do, they would always just travel with the family wherever it went. And they were literally like a part of the family. Um. I came across a writer um, who actually said this, and I think it's important to note because I think it does impact the way people think about Christians or the Bible. He said, and here's a list of what he wrote, uh, that, what he thought about Bible-believing Christians um, and, and why he thought they were crazy for believing the things that they did. He's like, it's got to be nonsense to think that a person could create the world in seven days. And then he goes on, he's like, it's even more crazy to think about the whole Noah's Ark story. And then he goes on to say, not only is that crazy, but just to think about this idea of a resurrection. And then he goes on to say, he says, and then the idea that slavery might be a good thing. He says, I don't want anything to do with the scriptures. Um, Now, let me just tell you this. Part of the reason why he can adamantly say everything else that he said is because so many pastors preach towards slavery as God's way when that was a lie. So because the church, in, well, some, well, you got we got we got we got some nasty cousins, right, in the church family. We got you got the you got crazy uncles, crazy aunts, things like that. I mean, in your family, in the in the in the church, you have people that are that way, and that's why Paul writes letters like this to the early church because he didn't want them to get off. Theology. He didn't want them to get off what was true, what was right, what was noble and what was just. And somehow along the way, the God of money caused pastors to take verses like this and to say, you can go do these things. So my first question is, is do we really think that that Paul here believed that slavery was good because of the message he was preaching? Well, let me start with this about this might this might be just a reality of what Paul would have understood. Um, I, I think Paul conceiving a world without slavery would be like Paul trying to conceive a world without electricity. Okay, I want you to process that just for a minute. Because in Paul's time, there had never been a time without slavery. It was always a part of humanity in that regard or the generations of nations. They always had some form of people that lived in the home to take care of tasks. Now, with us, we can't imagine a world without electricity because I can't I couldn't teach you tonight if I didn't have electricity. Right. Um, We wouldn't be doing things on Facebook tonight. We wouldn't be sitting in a room with lights. We would have to do this earlier in the day or have all kinds of candles around the room. Right. And so we can't imagine certain things unless you're a camper and you like to go out all the time. But in the first century, I don't think Paul in his mind 
thought of a world where people weren't helping families accomplish what that family business was or what that family's needs were because there was no industrialization. There wasn't anything like that. And so people needed a place to live, a place to eat. And so, so much of this talk that Paul is giving isn't necessarily about slavery being right or wrong. It's much like the last chapter in chapter five, where he holds men accountable to the image of Jesus Christ. And I told you guys last night that one of the things that I felt was from the interpretation of all of that was that if men actually acted like Christ in the home, I don't think women would ever have a problem listening to a man talk. Right. Because if we left a house of perfection to come after a bride to redeem it and lavished it. And then Paul goes on to say, and care for it while it's impure, which obviously implies women, you know, the time of the month, things like that is like they were literally viewed as impure at those times. And they were they would literally in the Jewish culture have to walk around saying impure, impure when they were walking down the street so nobody would touch them. Imagine having to grow up that way, this, the, the, the psychological impact of thinking that I am an impure creation. God is, Paul has already talked about redeeming that, restoring that. And so now the, the standard for a man and then the standard now even for a woman is that Jesus is the example. We can't look to another human being. I, would, I love being a mentor, but as a mentor, I point people to the example. I don't say follow, follow my example. I will say follow me as I follow the example, right? Because if we take Christ out of the conversation, we're in real trouble. So what I believe Paul is doing here in this particular passage of Scripture is that he is making it adamantly clear to slaves as well as to the masters that no matter what you do, you need to make sure you're thinking about Christ in it. Because there was a huge judgment on men at the end of Ephesians 5 that had to do with the fact that they're ultimately responsible for taking control of and making sure that Christ is honored in the home. Many slaves in that day and time, I will tell you, were not treated well. But there were also recorded records of families that had slaves and they had earned their freedom but decided to stay with the family because it was a loving unit and they felt like a family member. Because the people were treating them with love and dignity. I think Paul was wise to choose the way that he was speaking to them. Because it wasn't like they, they could automatically all just be emancipated. Because they all would have been homeless and nowhere to eat. But yet... If the master was coming to church and the slave was coming to church and they were loving in Christ, then I have a feeling that there weren't any needs that went unmet. There was a sacrificial love that was talked about in Galatians, excuse me, in Ephesians three that brought unity to the church. And there's so much more that we need to say on this particular matter, just going back and talking about the history of slavery in the first century versus the history of slavery in our nation. But I don't want the history of slavery in our nation to skew the fact that there were wrong things, but yet it was a different cultural approach to how slaves were worked into the home. The remarkable thing about this passage is that both the commands to the children and to the parents and those to the slaves and to the masters is that the children and the slaves evidently have in Paul's eyes what he calls rights as well as the parents and masters. He's telling them both, look, the children and the slaves have rights. So you parents and masters, you need to honor their rights, but you also have rights that they need to honor. Do you see what's happening here? It's almost I, I love the way if you actually personalize it. Now, we know it's a, a letter that my daughter did a great job of pronouncing the name of the man that was delivering the letter. I'm going to call him Ty for short. But I imagine Ty reading the letter and he's going around the room and he's actually taking a moment to say, because they're probably grouping together, you know, you children, you slaves, you parents, you masters, you have rights, you have rights, you have rights, you have rights, and you all have to honor each other's rights. Um, because of Christ and what he's done for you. 
I think slaves and children were to be obedient, and that was the end of it. That's what he's saying. But yet, parents and masters weren't supposed to ask them to do anything that didn't honor Christ. And I think that's part of the tension, is that a lot of times when we look at a scenario, um, a child wants to be the parent, or sometimes parents want to be children, um, and sometimes a slave wants to be the master, master, you know, and so a lot of times we're not content in our circumstances, um, but yet no matter where we are, it's Christ. No matter what I'm doing, whether I'm the employee or the manager, I have to act like Christ. And so why don't we have companies filled with good masters because they're like Christ? People that have their employees' best interests in mind and not their own. You know, that's, that, that's a lost treasure in our culture today. But I would love for the Lord to promote everybody in our church to places of management so we could set an example of how love looks like in the workplace. And then I would love for everybody that has a marriage in our church currently to be able to say, look, this is an example of where Christ is honored in the home. And look how love is reigning in our relationships and our family. I believe that Paul is insisting here on mutual responsibility. Parents must behave appropriately towards children, which means not being harsh, provoking children. It actually says husbands. but I also think he could have included wives, but he just left that out. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, Provoking children so that they become bitter and they want to rebel and run away. You know, we really didn't plan this ahead of time. Um, actually, my wife thought about it after we asked. But uh, I was just honored that my daughter was even reading the scriptures tonight as an 18-year-old. Um, I know there's been times in my life where I have exasperated her. There's times in my life where I've exasperated my son. Matter of fact, there's times in my life that pretty much everybody in my life has been exasperated. Can you get an amen, Albert? Right? Um, <laughs> Because besides my family, he's the one in the room that's been with me the longest, right? And so I'm, I don't claim perfection, but what I want to speak to is the heart of this passage. And I can tell you, and my family can bear witness, is when Ellis Prince is honoring Christ, my, my, my home is a lot more at peace. When Ellis Prince is honoring Christ, our church is a lot more at peace. And so that's part of what it means to be a body. We have an impact on one another. And so the issue tonight isn't to get caught up on the word slave because it has such a powerful impact. And, that we're in, and to be, get caught up on the word child or to get caught up on the word parent or to get caught up on the word master. What we need to get caught up on is that there is one Lord and one master. And if everybody else is working in conjunction with that, then we have momentum and love and unity and a powerful force that God can use to work incredible good. The final phase of, uh, of a phrase of what he says here is that there is no respecter of persons before the Messiah. He doesn't value one of us more than the other. But the problem is, is that some of us sitting in the seat don't feel valued like everybody else. And that's because there's been people in our lives that have harmed us and told us that. They haven't been putting Christ first, so they treat us like we're second class or third class or no class. Um, and it also means that there's spiritual warfare. That's why we're getting ready to talk about that here in just a minute. But there is one true God, and that true God is a, is a God of justice and judgment. And we are not pulling blinders over his eyes when we think we're hiding things inside closed doors. And so if you're not honoring God in your family and in your intimate relationships and your places at work and you're trying to sneak things at work, you know, and you're waiting for your manager to go away so you can start playing some video game again or surf Facebook or whatever it is. Um, and then you wait for the manager to come back to get back to work. God sees that he's not honored in that at all. And it's the same thing with parent child relationships It's the same thing between employee manager. It's all relationships. Throughout this passage and the previous one, I believe Paul is rightly seen as supporting the, the, the solid family life and the extended household, um, which at that day included slavery. In our day, it would include friends and neighbors, people that we work with, people that work the convenience store across the street are very much a part of our life. 
you look at where you actually live, the doorman, the, the people that clean your hallways, the people that are engaged in work around you, who are you treating inappropriately? Is it the bus driver at your stop you always get on every day? Who is less than you are in your life? And Jesus is saying, I'm Lord of all. Why don't you treat them that way? I think a lot of people have given up on the family. Balance with you. Because there's so much brokenness in our culture today around families. So people have very low expectations of what a husband, wife, children's relationships can be like. Um, and, I, and I heard this said once, and it came back to me today. Um, just because a garden has weeds doesn't mean you need to pave it over. Right? Paul is saying to this church in Ephesus that was having just as many family problems as we are. Um, God has a better way. And if you go his way, there's peace. There's a rhythm of peace all throughout these chapters. If we get certain parts right, it's almost like he says, yep, you feel the peace. You feel the peace. But everybody has to keep their focus on Christ. Just because um, there's so many oppressive families, we don't need to dismiss it altogether. The reason the family can become a place of fear and bondage is because it is designed to be a place of love, security, affirmation, and new life. But when corruption gets in, it's devastating. When marriages go bad, it's devastating. When family life is terrible, attitudes at work are terrible, employees are terrible, employers are terrible, it's just a mess. So where are we off base? Where are we not going in the right direction? And because of all of that, Paul is now going to talk about us about spiritual warfare and the armor of God. Now, I want you to understand this is strategically, I think, placed in his letter because he's talked about um, sexuality. He's talked about singing to remember theology. He's now talked about husbands and wives and children, slaves. So he's covered everything from the workplace all the way through our activity and our recreation time. He's covered all of that. And what he's saying to us now is, is that you need to be on guard that whether in physical form or in spiritual form, people don't want what we just talked about to happen. But it's worth guarding. It's worth protecting. And he gives us a way of doing that. Um, for some reason, almost wherever I teach about this passage, something spiritual warfare happens. Like um, most of the time when I've engaged in teaching, I was even uh, reading through something N.T. Wright wrote and I thought it was shocking. He's like, because he's not one that you don't see a lot of books on the shelves about spiritual warfare. Like you can go to the Christian bookstore and there's certain writers that just write about it and people go and they buy their books. But N.T. Wright a few years ago was actually writing a paper that was going to be published. And he'd been working on it for two days about spiritual warfare. And a, and a repairman outside drove a nail through the power line to his house. And the power to his word processor went off that he was working on. And when it booted back up, two days of work was gone. And he's like, is that coincidence? <laughs> um, and I think a lot of times we'll, we'll, we'll push spiritual warfare off as coincidence. When in actuality, it's uh, it's dangerous and it, it, it the enemy doesn't want the topic of spiritual warfare to be discussed because he doesn't want us to get good at fighting against him. Right. I, I think it's really important that we understand this. And it's going to be a stretch for some of us tonight because a lot of us in this room here have no idea what spiritual warfare is. We have no, no idea of what, or no concept or desire to even want to know what it is. And we might not even believe it exists because we can't see it with our eyes. So let me talk a little bit about this. C.S. Lewis actually wrote some incredible books called The Screwtape Letters. Um, and in one of them, he actually says this in the introduction. The general public prefers either to ignore the forces of evil altogether to pretend that they don't exist or to use cartoon images of the devil with horns and hooves as a argument to the effect or to take an unhealthy interest in every demonic, which could also be bad in every in the in the long run. So as the introduction to a book where he actually creates characters and develops this powerful storyline about spiritual warfare, he's saying, look, there's really two extremes. People either don't take it seriously or they take it too seriously. And what we have in this present passage is what I believe is required again and again as Christians face the daily, yearly battle for the kingdom. 
is a sober, realistic assessment, both of number one, the struggle we are engaged in. Like think about what we just talked about work relationships, family relationships, couple relationships, sexual encounters, um, Jews and Gentiles coming together. We have so many different forces at work. I mean, trying to bring unity, so many different divisions, so many different things we're trying to get over. And if we're not careful, we're going to face that struggle and we're not going to be properly engaged in it. And then he also wants this portion of scripture to give us the weapons at our disposal. So it is a a surprise to many of us that there is a struggle at all, right? We talked about that. Like, why should we even struggle? Why is there this going on? So here's what I think is, is important. We find it hard to forgive people. We find it hard to pray regularly, to resist temptation, and to learn more about our faith. So often we don't put into practice the Christian disciplines we've been taught. For some of us sitting in this room for the last nine days, you've heard these things before. But yet we're hearing them again. But yet are we motivated to actually put anything into practice? They have never thought that their struggles might be a part of a larger campaign. Why am I not learning to pray? Why am I struggling to set disciplines? Why am I struggling to want to sing and worship? Why are all these things? Do you maybe think that there's somebody that doesn't want you to put them into practice because he doesn't want you to mature? And so what you've been taught year after year, and you're like, yes, I need to develop a prayer life. And then three days after a prayer event's over, you stop praying. You start journaling and you get two pages into the journal. The journal goes blank. Um, I wonder if it is spiritual warfare that's fighting against us. They're like soldiers. Um, for many times, we are like soldiers fighting in a fog. And we actually don't know everything that's happening around us. But we know that we're in a line of battle. But yet we can't see everything. But the thing for us to understand is, is that we many times don't have the full vantage point. That's what generals are for. Generals know where all the battle lines are and where everybody's at. But we on the front line, we just know what's right in front of us. But there's so much more going on. And we've got to be careful that we don't get distracted. But at least they, these soldiers on the front line, they know something that's going on. And, but they know that they're a part of something bigger. And that's what we've got to grasp. And holding out against attack is what this passage is mostly about. We are holding out against it. And it's not that I want you to think that it's about Armageddon someday. Like when Jesus comes back, there's going to have a battle. We're going to have this armor up. Like we're waiting and preparing for a battle someday. Some of us are waiting and preparing for a battle that's going to happen to us in like five minutes. Some of us are going to get home and we're going to get bad news. Some of us are going to get back tomorrow morning and wake up to bad news. Um, much like our sister's prayer request, somebody that's going to lose a job and lose a house, that they are, they are stepping flat in to a battle zone where the enemy is looking to steal, kill, and destroy. And if we aren't firmly placed in Christ and we aren't fully armored up, we'll walk into a situation that seems deadly tragic to us, and it will be. But yet Paul is saying to them, if we don't, we, if we if we learn to do what he's saying, we will be able to stand all of those pressures. The weapons Paul speaks about are mainly defensive ones. I think you've probably heard that before. Equipping us with standing attack and still be standing at the end of the day. It's the belt, the breastplate, the shoes, the shield, the helmet. They're all in, they all enable us to remain safe under attack. The only one that's offensive is the sword, which is the word of God. Um, Now, let me go through this really quickly, because I think most of you have heard about this before. And if you haven't, we can always follow up with you in the the days to come. First is truth. How many times has he talked about truth in these first three chapters, going into chapter four and then going into chapter five? Truth. The primary thing about the Christian message is that it's true. And if we're going to fight the battles of the enemy... We have to know that the faith we have in Jesus Christ is true. It's not meaningless. It isn't true because it works. It works because it's true. Never give up on the sheer truth of the gospel. And the gospel is what he outlined in chapter one. A great father 
lavish love on us in Christ, brought us into Christ, gave us his spirit to empower us, to give us revelation and wisdom and power. That's the gospel that we've been saved into that. We can believe into that. We can confess into that. And our faith is in that. And so it is like the belt that holds everything else together and in place is the truth about Jesus Christ. The second thing is about justice or righteousness. This isn't just virtue, important though it is. It is the fact that one true God is the one true judge and intends to put the whole world to rights. Indeed, the process has already begun when God vindicated Jesus and vindicated us in him. The fundamental justice of goodness of God and the statues that Christians have have already been in the right before him. So it's like a breastplate. So everything about God's justice and righteousness covers our chest because God knows it. He understands it. He's all for it. And so therefore, you and I, we can stand against injustice. We can stand for righteousness. And the injustice part of it is what a lot of Christians are trying to do right now against things like the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter, other things that are happening in our nation, the ways that people are fighting for the rights of immigrants and the people that are fighting for the poor and the um, low socioeconomic urban environment. There's so many places where like people are like, look, this can't be. I'm actually working on uh, an article um, that I don't know how far it's going to go, but I had an African-American man while I was in Guatemala that I, I, I really grow to love. His name is Tor. And we were talking at the airport and he shared an illustration with me I'd never heard before. He says, are you familiar with the African-American phrase crabs in a barrel? Um, I'm like, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with it. And he says, have you noticed when you put crabs in a barrel, they climb on one another, pull on one another to get to the top. And a lot of times they're climbing and pulling on one another, but they're harming one another. Like larger crabs can actually rip limbs off of other crabs and they're fighting to get on top. And he's like, a lot of people are like, well, look at those crabs. They're just destroying each other to get to the top. But they fail to see the problem. The crabs weren't meant to live in the barrel. And when you look at a lot of our people in our nation right now, they've been placed in a barrel and that's not where they're meant to live. And so we look back like, well, why are they harming each other? Why are they hurting each other? Why are they destroying each other? And so spiritual warfare, which then involves the Holy Spirit and me standing for justice and righteousness, is me putting on my breastplate in the morning and saying, who's trapped in a barrel? Third, the gospel of peace. The message that is a peace with God and peace between different previously hostile groups. See, this is a thing that I think is important understanding about peace. The people in the room that are now worshiping Christ used to hate each other. I mean, we're talking like racial hatred, much like we saw in our country with the way that blacks and whites treated one another. It, there was hatred. And now they're worshiping with one another. And if we're not careful, the temptation is going to be for them to go towards that same hatred if they don't make sure that they're putting on these good shoes of feet, these good shoes of peace that are going to help them stand upright. Because if you're not standing in peace, you're not going to have sure footing. It's the gospel of peace, these great shoes, these great boots that keep you from losing your footing. The fourth, the shield of faith, is the belief in Jesus as the risen Lord and that our utter loyalty is to Jesus. That's what the shield of faith does every day, is that when I get up, I'm on my way towards Christ. I'm loyal to him. No matter what circumstances happen, what I'm tempted to believe, what I'm tempted to have happen in my life, I'm putting the shield out in front of me. So when we say we hate cancer, we don't get angry at God because I have faith in my God. When I say that I, I'm upset about the cultural climate of a people group in our city that has been placed in a barrel, I'm not getting angry with God because God wasn't the one that placed them in the barrel. So my loyalty is to Christ saying that, again, remember, Paul at the end of chapter 3 says, I'm in prison for your glory. And so what he was saying by that is, I'm in prison because I am fighting against the principalities and powers. And look where it got me. Praise Jesus. 
He's like, I am pressing back the things that are oppressing people. I'm, I'm casting light into darkness. And yes, we are still in a war for it. But when I make sure that I have on my shield of faith, I am not going to lose my loyalty to Jesus Christ, no matter what circumstances come my way. And the arrows that come our way will bounce off of our shield of faith. And being loyal will quench all of those arrows. Fifth is the helmet of salvation, knowing that we already belong in the family of faith in Jesus Christ through the Messiah, not only rescues us in our soul towards an eternal promise in heaven, but it also will rescue us to stand almost arrogantly confident. Like it doesn't matter what comes my way. I am a son or a daughter of the most high God. And so our helmet being placed on is like me identifying myself with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And no matter what comes at me that day, I know that I am a child of God. And there's nothing that's going to change that. No medical situation, no financial situation, because there are principalities and powers. And there are people that are bad people that are seeking to still kill and destroy from us. And if we let them, we will leave our helmet at home and we will get out there and we will be totally insecure. Because there are forces at work that don't want you to develop the practices of your faith. Because when you practice it, you actually are reassuring what you know so that you're, 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 you're growing in your faith and it's getting stronger through the power of the Holy Spirit. And salvation is a way for us and we should always wear our helmet. And so the one offensive weapon that we have is the sword, which is called the word of God. Now, let me say one thing about the word of God here just for a minute, because most Christians will think that when Paul was saying this, he's referring to the entire scriptures. Like, and I've actually seen pastors pick it up off of the pulpit and swing it around like a sword because we're going to fight the enemy and we're going to fight against evil with the word of God. Now, yes, I think it's a great way to describe the Bible as the word of God. But Paul didn't have that word of God when he said this. There wasn't even most of the New Testament wasn't even written when he wrote this. And so the Bible that we have wasn't the Bible that he had. So what does it mean for him to be clearly articulating the word of God? So it seems here that what he's previously said in earlier passages, Paul's referring to various Old Testament passages, specifically including in Isaiah Interestingly, it is, he is talking, is taking passages that appear to be about the Messiah clothed in righteousness and faithfulness, striking the earth with his words and with the mouth like a sharp sword coming to the announcement of the gospel of peace. So when he is talking about this, he's talking about the gospel of peace that he's bringing through Jesus Christ, which is Ephesians one and two. And so when you start thinking about, I need to have a word that I'm swinging, what my, the word that I'm swinging at people is that God loves you. He died for you. This isn't to harm you. This is for me to fight against the enemy and evil people. But what I say to enemies is in Jesus' name. What I say to people that are doing bad, you know, Jesus doesn't do that. And, and we talk about the faith that we begin. Remember, our first calling is to talk about the salvation that we have. I think this is what it, he means when he's saying uh, by us being strong in the Lord. It is because all these things that um, that true that the true Jesus himself and um, because we are his people finding ourselves in him, that we can be true, that it will be true to us as well is that we are reaffirming the truth of our testimony in Jesus Christ as a way of fighting back darkness. So what is the battle? Who's, who are we fighting against and what are we actually doing here according to Paul? I think Paul is clearly saying there are spiritually evil forces. So if you don't believe in spiritually evil forces, you're going to struggle with everything Paul has said. You're going to start with most of the things in the New Testament because even Jesus had a conversation with Satan. Right. So there's so much about it. So if you are living in denial that there are spiritual forces at work, I would love for you tonight to just make that your prayer. Not that you would engage with them because you're not you're not strong enough to. You're not prepared. If you don't even somewhat believe in them, don't even begin to flirt with it in a way, because if you do, you will be blown away by what you experience. I can promise you that. 
I'm wanting to tell you so many stories, but I don't want to freak any of you out. So Paul clearly supposes that the forces of evil that put Jesus on the cross have been seriously upset by the victory of the resurrection. So what do upset people do when they lose? They throw a fit. They tip the game board over. They call you a cheater. They run around. They act like children. You know, all this kind of stuff. So what has been going on since the resurrection? This panic-stricken spiritual world is saying, whoops, we lost to Jesus, but we're going to take it out on all his image bearers. And he's going to, they're coming after us because they don't want us to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. They don't want us to exercise the authority we've been given. They don't want us to have communities that are loyal to Jesus, that are living out the promises of Jesus and, and blessing and loving and caring for one another the way that he has designed for us to do. Sometimes the attacks that come our way um, are actual literal frontal attacks, much like um, what was the name of the bridge um, that Martin Luther King was walking across? The Selma, Selma Bridge. Um, that was evil on the other side. That was physical, right? But there are other times where it was spiritual forces that were attacked. And so we've got we've to be careful to not think, oh, all of my spiritual fights are against spiritual things. Sometimes our spiritual fights are against flesh and blood that are really lost in evil. And we've got to be aware of that. Sometimes it'll take some um, other times it'll even come from forces or people that are just trying to rob you of your time. Why do you think he spent so much time in Ephesians 2 and 3 talking about the ways we think and we process and discern? Because the enemy might not want to kill you or totally get you to lose your faith, but he will not. He doesn't want you to learn to pray. He doesn't want you to learn to sing. He doesn't want you to learn to serve. Because if you do those things, you're dangerous. So if he distracts you with Netflix binging and, and um, other hobbies or excessive hobbies or excessive things, and you next thing you know, I'm just too busy to be discipled. And he's like, I'm totally okay with that. The enemy's like, I'm good with you being too busy to be discipled. Sometimes it's simple as money, sex, and power, right? Sometimes that's all he needs to do is just dangle those things out there. And, oh, we're like, whoa, let's just go with it, right? And off we go. It's been effective for generations. So what are the three things I think Paul's saying here? First, we need to recognize that attacks are coming. Second, we need to learn how to put put on the complete armor. And third, we need to stand firm and don't lose heart. But I think there's another weapon that I never realized before in this particular passage. It wasn't until going through these commentaries and looking and looking or studying all of this that I realized that his next statements about prayer aren't a aren't a separate thought from the armor of God. So could there be another weapon to the armor that we've totally ignored? And it hit me like a ton of bricks. There are a lot of prayerless churches. There are a lot of ineffective churches. There are a lot of people that love to come and sing and love to come and serve, but they don't pray. But yet we're still falling victim to the darts of the enemy. And I'm sitting here thinking, how many, time, how many years have we been teaching that the armor of God has four defensive weapons and one offensive weapon? How long have we been doing that? Because prayer should be on there. It should be a part of this story of the armor of God. But for too long, I've been taught in church that that's not a part of it. And so when I begin to look at this, I'm sitting here thinking that, wow, as a Christian, I need to be totally focused on prayer because prayer is essential. Now, imagine being an eagle, a mighty eagle, the, the, the bird of our nation, and somebody's clipped your wings. Do you think that bird still wants to fly? Yeah, absolutely. But he can't because his wings have been clipped. How many, how many of you would ever, I don't know, I love boats, by the way. But after some of the hurricanes, I've seen boats pushed so far inland, you'll see a boat in the middle of a farm field standing on crops, right? Does a boat do any good on land? Doesn't you think the boat wants to get in the water and have some fun, right? Exactly, if it had a personality, like Thomas the Tank Engine, right? Imagine a hockey player with his ankles tied together, right? Yeah, I mean, imagine what that would be like. 
And this is this is the armor of God without prayer. It's like a boat out of water. It's like a bird with the wings clipped. It's like an athlete that has to compete with his ankles tied together. Prayer is essential for us to know how to discern. Is it attack of the enemy or is this a place for me to mature? Why is this bothering me? Why does this aggravate me? Where is it in Christ? Prayer is the way that we figure these things out. Prayer is the way we fight against it. Prayer is how I know when one of you is upset or, or needs something and you haven't been able to verbalize it. And, the, and I feel in the spirit of prayer that, you know, I've got to come and I've got to approach these people. I think that Paul here is bringing this prayer in because at the heart of who he was, he was really frustrated with where he was. Because much like a bird with his wings clipped, he was an apostle in chains. He was supposed to be going around city to city preaching and establishing churches and he's locked up. He's held up. He can't get anywhere. And he's wanting to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And he's wanting the church to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And he's chained down and he can't fly. He can't do what he's supposed to do. And so here he begins to ask them, would you pray for me? I think every preacher wants to know that there's people in his church praying for them. And selfishly tonight, I would just love to to see some of you just make a commitment that, look, you're going to be on my prayer list. I'm going to pray for you every day because I want your truth to be told. Because as a pastor, every Sunday, the only the only night of the week I have a hard time sleeping is Saturday night. Because the next day I got to stand up in front of all of you and tell you what God thinks. And if I get that wrong, I could really screw you up. And I don't want to do that. I want to point you to the real image of the one true God. I want to point you to the one that loves you most. So I need you to pray that I always have the right words. And I and not only do I end up getting the right words, that I can make them clear. Even after nine days and six or seven hours of talking. Um, So how can you get your mind sufficiently around the extraordinary saving plan of God if you don't learn to pray? And so it's my responsibility to ask you to pray for me because somehow I've got to take this mysterious love story of a lavish love of God and communicate to people in a way that they can understand it. So would you please pray for me? Paul doesn't want his situation to get worse, but I think in verse 20, I think he's determined with full boldness. That the word he uses in verse 20 almost means brazenly. Like like he is settled in his mind that he will go on talking about the King Jesus, his victory over death, and his present and future kingdom no matter what happens to him. Are we that dead set on our faith in Christ? I don't care what comes my way. I am going to talk about Jesus. Verse 18, I think, is sometimes taken as a continuation of the complete armor, which I think it really should be. All prayer is necessary for spiritual warfare. The point of prayer is that it accomplishes things that we can't do in our own effort. But I will tell you guys this. Prayer is a mystery. I will never be able to fully explain it to you. Um, I love what the Archbishop William Tyndale once said. He says, I declare that wherever else one might say about whether prayer worked, he had noticed that when he says that when I noticed that that I prayed, coincidences happened. And when he stopped praying, coincidences stopped happening. I love how he said that. But I mean, obviously he believed in prayer and they weren't coincidences. But it made me think of a golfing joke my brother told me. Um, he says, Um, When a professional golfer said when somebody accused him of being lucky, he agreed. But then he commented that he that he'd noticed that the more he practiced, the luckier he got. Um, And and I want to tie this into prayer. Um, I know that I don't want to use the word lucky in prayer in the same sentence, but I think you get the analogy. Maybe you're getting out of your prayer life. What are you putting into it? And there's a mystery to it. Some of you are like, well, if God loves me, I shouldn't have to spend three years praying for somebody. I, I can't really argue with you or against you or whatever. I'm just going to tell you that prayer works because my family's seen it. Um, and there are people in my life that I've prayed for for a long time. There are things in my life I've prayed for for a long time. 
My family prayed for nine years living here in Baltimore that we would own a home. Um, we moved here with the ability to start the church, but we didn't have any savings to buy a house. And it wasn't until the, God just miraculously moved this past April in a special way through a family in our church that was able to sell us a house that we could buy and move into it. Right? And so we, we, we didn't have the means or the capacity to do that. But God did it. And there's so many other stories around that. It was God did stories. We're not getting lucky. We're, we're, we're fasting and praying. This, I will be honest with you in this regard. I'm not saying this in a way of, of any boast, but this is the first time in my life I've ever gone nine days without food. So I've been teaching you every day on just water and a cup of coffee in the morning. But my body has changed so drastically from going without food that I noticed something different on Monday that when I drank my coffee, I felt different. So I cut it back a little bit. On Tuesday, but then Tuesday night I was so tired and drained that I decided, well, let me have a cup of coffee. And literally before the service started, I thought I was having a heart attack. My chest hurt so bad. But this is why I tell you this. The last 10 years in our church have been excellent. Seeing what's happened in 10 years. But the longing in my heart these last nine days has been, God, could you do more in the next 10 years? And I believe that the Lord will do more in the next 10 years if you and I learn the value of our spiritual armor and we include prayer in that. Because if we value the spiritual armor and we include prayer, that means we're automatically agreeing to the first three chapters of Ephesians. The first three chapters lay the foundation of our faith. Prayer is hard work. As attested to this week. And I don't want any of us to get tired of doing it. We have to learn to put it into practice. That's why we do little things like offer you a daily window practice on Sunday. I don't know how many of you, after hearing that, have ever gone and set your phone to morning, noon, and evening where you take time to pray. But the Lord blessed my heart because there's been a lady showing up to prayer every morning. She can't make the nights, but she's been showing up to prayer every morning at 7 a.m. for nine straight days. And her phone beeped during prayer the first morning. She goes, I'm sorry, that was my daily window alarm. I forgot to turn it off. And, and she's, a, she's a sweet woman that God has blessed our church with. with. And she's like, yeah, my, my, the ladies at work always say, why does your phone go off at noon every day? And she's like, I get a chance to tell them I'm looking to pray and talk to my father in heaven. You know, and I'm like, okay, wow, maybe somebody actually is doing this. Right? But yet what I believe is the most important thing for you and I is this is that I promise you we will see the mighty hand of God when we begin to do the things that God has asked us to do. We have to find a way to be faithful to that. And so let me just talk briefly, just quickly about this um, Thai guy at the very end. I believe that, that he was delivering Paul's message to a bunch of cities around, starting in Colossae and working his way, if you look at church history, but I think the underlying reason why he's being mentioned here is because he wants his arrival to be an encouragement to the church because he wants them to remember that the persecution that they're facing, all of the warfare that they're facing, all the struggles in the church that he's just taught them through are for glory why he's in prison. Like he is in prison because he's fighting for them to be able to be one in Christ. And so he's saying this guy is showing up as a physical presence to testify to you that the good fight is still happening. So I'm fighting it in chains. I want to be let free. But while I'm still chained up, I'm still fighting it. So while you're free, don't let anything restrain you. Love each other well. Care for one another. Fight for one another. Lose the selfishness. Continue to look for ways to, to follow the self-sacrificing love of Christ for us. And I love how he ends this with this emphasis on peace. Peace with God. And I I'm going to read this to you from N.T. Wright. Peace with God. Peace with one another. Across all types of traditional barriers. That is central to the message of Ephesians. Central is the great vision of God's people that it offers. Central to our lives and vocations. As to the day to day we try to follow who, the, who is the first head that we should be listening to peace here as elsewhere is bound up closely with love and faith 
It comes from the one true God, the Father, the Lord, the King Jesus, and it comes as sure blessing on those who love for the same Jesus will outlast death. They are, he is saying to them that Jesus is going to outlast it all. We are in him, so because we're in him, we're going to outlast it all. So just hold on. I believe this is what's the basis for our Christian faith. And uh, if you want to write this in your journal, it'll be our closing statement. Loving Jesus with an undying love in response to his undying love for us or his dying love for us. Loving Jesus with an undying love is in response to his dying love for us. If we can keep that at the forefront of our minds, we won't struggle in our marriages. We won't struggle in our work relationships. We won't struggle if you're the employee or you're the manager. You won't struggle because we will have a mind that's fixed on Christ and we'll have right thinking. We'll be armored up. We'll be ready to go. And the, and we will not see anybody less than us. And there'll be more and more unity in the church. And then we're going to become more generous, more gracious, more kind. And before long, nobody will ever be able to say anything bad about us. Let's pray. Father. I pray, Lord, even through the inadequacies of communication that your spirit was able to do something tonight, especially for my brothers and sisters that were here for the first time that missed out on everything else. But, Father, would you make us steadfast in in the fact that we are not going to stop reading Ephesians. We're going to let it disciple us. We're going to get in discipling relationships and we're going to mature. We are going to mature our body so it fits the head. Father, we want to fit the head of Christ. We want to be fully mature in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, would you help us do that? And, Father, would you help us to continue to realize that prayer is essential for our faith? And, Lord, would we learn and grow more and more confident in talking about you to other people? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.